Okay, so let's just kind of review a little bit, pull up a little bit for Revelation itself. What kind of genre is Revelation? It's a trick question. I said it last week. It is multi. <clears throat> it's prophetic, it's apocalyptic, it's epistles. And who wrote it? Another trick question. Apostle John, right? What is it about? End times, okay. Jesus coming back, yes. False, yes. It's about the, yes, more specifically, it's about the revelation, right, of what will happen, mostly symbolically, the end of the world, right? In other words, those events that were written on the scroll that were opened, uh, it, it, the, those events. And where was he when he wrote it? He was in Patmos. And when did he write it? Another trick question. <laughs> Either the 90s or the 60s, depending on where you are, right? Um, should we take everything in it literally? Why should we not take everything in it necessarily literally? Because there's no dragons. <laughs> Hello, Severns. Because it goes back to the genre, right? It is, uh, if it's apocalyptic, right? A lot of symbolic, a lot of... Exactly, and it says it. We're going to see that twice tonight. There was another sign in heaven, right? It's not events that happened in the earth, right? Should we take everything chronologically? Yeah, most of the time, no. We saw that last week with the, the series of the sevens and the nested dolls, and it gives birth to something else and that uh, sort of thing, okay? Um, what was my next question? Do we know everything clearly? No. Absolutely not, and we will not. Um, good advice is to not start with Revelation, right? Start with the rest of the Bible. It's pretty much, it's, it's in the back for a reason. Like, you should read the whole Bible first before you get to Revelation. Then you can balance it with the rest of Scripture. Um, I saw a great quote by Paul Washer uh, this week that said, When Jesus returns, you'll know everything you need to know about eschatology in about 10 seconds. I like that. One of our other people at Highland said he was a, a pan-millennial. At the end, it's just all going to pan out. Don't really know exactly how it's, <laughs> it's going to happen sometimes. All right, so we've got to remember the big pieces. Christ will return. Christ wins. Keep those big pieces in mind. We're going to have to have grace, right? Through this, I'm, I'm kind of leaning a certain way. And, you know, if you don't lean the way I do you're out of the church. That's, I don't know any other way to say it. It's just, you know, well, no, you, you're not out of the church. Uh, we don't know all things. They're not clear. Uh, this is the way that I lean, but like I said, I look forward to be corrected uh, in glory when that happens. Okay, so uh, intro to this week. What about the bonus? Oh, the bonus. The bonus is we're not going to finish tonight, so we're going to meet again next week. <laughs> we're hopefully... We're maybe we're hopefully we will finish next week because I got a lot to do in the weeks after that. Okay, intro to this week. Uh, when we last left our heroes, we had seven seals that had been opened. We saw several versions, or two versions actually, of the end times of what it looks like when Jesus returns. Right? We saw the 144 faithful servants, which we said most likely means the church. 
The combined church, combining uh, the old covenant, the new covenant together, Israel and true believers in Christ, making up the complete family of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We saw challenges to the church to remain faithful in the midst of that. We saw our two witnesses again, probably most likely symbolizing the church because they were called lampstands. They were continuing to proclaim the gospel. Even though they died, they came back to life, symbolizing what? That you can't kill the church. The gates of hell will not stand against the church. Uh, we saw the seven trumpets sounding this week. We're going to see women. We're going to see dragons. We're going to see Satan. We're going to see beasts. We're going to see 666. And we're going to see another cycle of sevens uh, in the seven bowls. Okay? That being said, here's another movie for you because I know. Hello, cellos. You're going to want them. This is an edited movie. So this is six minutes long to... Um, show us hopefully we'll get through 12 through 16 as an overview tonight okay so let me get my volume ready because it's never the revelation of jesus given to john the first prophet. Off. in the first video we explored how john yes. composed this, this meaning what we're doing here right now or this letter movie. to seven oh yeah if you just google Minor, bible project challenge revelation. and comfort these yeah, christians who are up. suffering from apathy and persecution under the roman empire we also encountered John's main symbol for Jesus, doing a little review, the slain so lamb, who conquered his enemies by dying for them. He is the one who opens up the scroll containing God's purposes to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The scroll's opening brought warning judgment, like the plagues of Egypt, and like Pharaoh, the nations do not repent. And then John introduced the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb, and the open scroll revealed their strange mission. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and mercy before the beastly nations, even if it kills them. And they will conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the Lamb, and this will move the nations to repentance. In the remainder of the book, John will fill out his portrayal of this beast and his war on God's people and how the whole story ends. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, 
This is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek. And Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the words beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero is just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat? Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments, symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl as the dragon and the beasts, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with Gog. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's... Come on, you knew I was going to have lots of graphics like that <laughs> this week. Okay, so hopefully that was a pretty good overview to get you guys dug into this a little bit. Um, let's try our best to get through 12 through 16. So yeah, let's go to Revelation 
chapter 12. I'll read the first six verses where we'll, we'll pick up with the lady and her dragon. A great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Right? Watch that. That's twice already. Uh, Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten hordes, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. There's a cheerful thought. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, which, is, which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so first remember, just twice, they've already said it here in this passage, there was a sign in the heaven. Okay, so this is something that's happening in the spiritual realm. Not necessarily something that's literal events on the earth. So it's symbolic imagery, so what does it symbolize? What do we think? We see... A woman, we see somebody giving birth. He seems to be somebody important. Any thoughts? Yes, yeah, Sunday school answer. Jesus, definitely. And Jesus is going to give birth to, really, the church, right? If you go farther with that, the heavenly vision of the birth of the Messiah through Israel. Because we know the Messiah came through Israel. And ultimately, the birth of the church and the cosmic spiritual battle that awaits. I mean, just think about, or that happened. Think about that, that, that idea of obviously Satan didn't want the Messiah to be born. And certainly they did not want the Messiah to be crucified, right? And we see that this represents Jesus and, of course, giving birth to the church later on and the conflict that results. Satan couldn't destroy Jesus, so now he goes after the church. This all fits later on in verse 17, talking about the rest of her offspring, right? You saw that in the movie too. One commentator said that the Old Testament Israel was pregnant with Christ for thousands of years. Israel was being used as a womb from which the Messiah would be born. We get a picture of this Satan, a red dragon, <clears throat> with seven heads and ten horns. Most likely represents something like the many fronts of his assault on the church. The many ways that he's going to try to attack the church. His strength, of course. And, and she is going to be nourished for 1,260 days. Or 42 months. Or time, times, and half a time. Again, is that literal or is that symbolic? What do we think? I mean... Depends on what you are, right? If you're what you are. Depends on your interpretation. If you're a futurist, if you're dispensational, probably in nature, you're gonna say, absolutely, that means a fixed period of time. It's going to happen that way. I don't know. Uh, I tend to fall on the symbolic side of things that just shows the protection of the church. And um, just like the protection of the two witnesses in chapter eleven, verse three, ironically, was also one thousand two hundred and sixty days. So we see that. We see these numbers. Um, the time of protection also corresponds to the time of persecution. If you look to uh, chapter 11, verse 3, or verse 2, it says, again, about the witnesses, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 
for 1,260 days. And so that whole time they were being persecuted, but they're also being protected. So God's saying, hey, the church will be protected for whatever period of time that it is going to be persecuted, whether that is actually 1,260 days or just a symbolic 1,260 days. What encouragements do we see from this first little bit of chapter 12? What do we think? When we look at um, these first verses and we see this, this epic spiritual battle happening, what, what encouragements can we get from it? Yeah, that will do not prepare. Yeah, the church wins, right? Jesus wins even from that point. Like he tried. He knew how important that was, but he could not stop the church. And we see the sovereign protection of God on the church. We see that God is greater than Satan. And we also see a representation perhaps of us in our own wilderness journey as the church, as we go through this sin-stained world. Uh, we're also being protected by God. Look at the next part of chapter 12. In verse 7, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So we see another, or the continuation rather, of this epic spiritual cosmic battle that's going on here. This takes place, if you look at verse 10, it says, the loud voice said, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ, have come. When do you, so theoretically, in the scope of redemptive history, when do you think that would have been? When was the power of Christ revealed? The resurrection. Yeah, the cross and the resurrection. So Satan sees all this, which makes him even more resolved against, because now he knows that this is going to give birth to the church, and Christ has, has dealt him a mortal blow. And so now, with even more fervor, he goes after the church, right? This is after the work of the resurrection. So with the work of Christ complete, remember this is in the heavens, right? There's no place for him anymore, because he's rebelled against that, and he's clearly gone against Christ. So he is kicked out of, spiritually, of heaven, and spiritually banished 
and given limited authority on the earth. We see that in Ephesians 2, that uh, people are sinners before they're regenerated. They follow the power of the prince of the air. And so everyone who really is uh, before Christ, all we do is sin, and all we do is please ourselves, and all, that's all we know, right? All we know, and Satan loves that. So Satan goes off to make war on humanity, and especially to the church, and you see that clearly at the end. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. According to verse 9, how does he do that? How does he make war? Yeah. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a twister. He's a liar. Those are his weapons. And so he goes after uh, counterfeiting the real thing. And we'll see that even more in a minute. He does that through false teaching, of course. He does it through the allure of the satisfaction of sin, that this is what you truly need instead of following God. He deceives us with that, right? What other encouragements do we see? And of course, I wrote them down on the slide. I mean, think of this battle, this, this epic uprising, right? That Satan knows what's happening, but yet the tremendous spiritual power and significance of the work of Christ. The crucifixion and the resurrection. Like when Christ rose from the dead, think about that as a death blow, literally, to Satan and to evil. And he knew that, right? That the whole paradigm changed at that point. So we separate that sometimes from the spiritual power that the resurrection, the spiritual accomplishments that the resurrection actually did um, it's also a peek behind the curtains in the heavens to see the spiritual realm the spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes and satan rebelling against god and the church being at war with satan right satan hates what we're doing right now right you guys beat him because you actually came out to midweek tonight so ha and we see the triumph of god of course being greater than satan and how do we conquer as the church? There's a, a very popular song to sing it as well, right? The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, right? So our, our spiritual warfare, right? You can get lost in the concept of spiritual warfare, but our spiritual warfare is pointing to the war that's already basically been won, right? We don't have to get too wrapped up in that stuff. We get wrapped up in who actually already fought the war, who actually already won the war, right? So... We do that through the blood of the Lamb by remembering Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we do that how? By holding to the Word, by holding to the Gospel, by being faithful. So if you want, you want to talk spiritual warfare, just gave it to us in Revelation. Remember the crucifixion of Christ, put all your faith in that, and hold unswervingly to the Gospel. No matter what goes on around us, remain faithful. Okay? Onward to 13? 13? That's okay. Let's look at some beasts. Woohoo! And then I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horn and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So we have the dragon, Satan, giving this beast his power and authority. 
One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God and blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. And it also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And the authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And to all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. The book of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Okay, so we see a beast rising out of the sea. What does a sea represent biblically? And remember from last week, is it written on the slide? Darn it. Chaos. Right? We see that uh, in the flood. We see that in Jonah. We see that in Jesus calming the sea a couple times. Right, We see a bunch of things. What about these beasts themselves? Daniel 7 has a very, very similar vision with a lot of these similar beasts. And it clearly represents the world powers at that time. Right? And the empires that were to come. And that is super important for how we're going to look at this, right? But right away, what does that tell us about the identity of this beast in Revelation? If it's, if it's pretty much word from word from Daniel 7, which clearly represented world powers, would it necessarily depart from that? No, probably wouldn't. Because again, so much of the Old Testament is transported into revelation and it's the fulfillment of a lot of that right and so right away we're probably and this is not a literal beast right and we're probably dealing with a symbolization of world or government or empires right are beasts generally uh, happy people that you want to hang around with right? no they're usually dangerous right you don't want to be so so then we see like okay so it's symbolizing then a hostile government Something that's hostile to Christianity. Something that is hoping to exterminate Christianity. And boy, we've seen a lot of those over the history of the world. So it symbolizes the persecution of the church from world powers. And that has been happening all along. Daniel was persecuted for not worshiping the state. Right? So are currently the Afghanis and North Koreans. So were Christians who lived in the first century under Nero when they refused to worship the emperor. So this is a symbolization of what has been going on all along with evil empires, so to speak, that have persecuted the church. It's a reflection of the God-hating worldview, the one that worships culture and rejects God, his church, his word. I've said it before, we all live in a blasphemous culture. Our worldview is blasphemous against God. What encouragements then can we see besides stay faithful, which I said so generically there? Exactly. 
or when we face persecution. Picture yourself being in the first century and your friends were getting fed to the lions or whatever else, right? I need to remember that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and nothing can snatch me out of his hand. Like, such an encouragement as we, as we continue to develop here in our culture. And of course, for those in cultures that are openly hostile to the gospel, right? Right now, we just have kind of this soft hostility towards the gospel. It's an intellectual hostility, right? North Korea, Afghanistan, Syria, Iran, all of that, completely different story, right? They're living this every day. What about verse 10? Beautiful thing. I mean, it's kind of like a sobering thing. He says, basically, hey, if you're going to go to jail, you're going to go to jail. <laughs> if you're going to be martyred for the faith, yep, you're going to be martyred for the faith. He says, but this is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So again, we hear that rallying cry, that battle cry again that says, you've got to stay faithful, church. You've got to stay faithful. Why? Because your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Remember whose you are. Remember who's already won the battle. Remember that Satan can't compare to God. Right? And so take those encouragements. Yeah. Yeah. Endure. Yeah. That's, that's why I love marching through a book, because we've already seen that probably half a dozen times, and we'll continue to see it. Says endure. Yeah. Exactly. And you look at biblical church history, that's what we've seen all along, right? That's why I'm not a pre-trib secret rapture guy. Because our hope is not that suddenly we'll be taken out of here before all this goes down. I mean, we've already run into it. It's like, that's not what we see. He says, hold fast. He says, it's coming. Buckle up. Get ready. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. I, I would not get eschatology from left behind. I, I, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's look at 13. Continuing, let's look at the second beast. And then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven and to earth in front of people. Ooh. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, I, I, I joke around, but if I were in the presence of this actual beast, which is a symbolic beast, I would not be saying, ooh, I'd be calling for my mommy, right? It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay. 
What is this symbolizing? What is what's the, what's the I heard a groan right there. It, it, yeah, it is. It just it forces you to reckon it because let's face it, not many people truck through Revelation, right? So we just kind of pick eschatology here and there from places like Left Behind or YouTube videos or some things that we've seen or a preacher saying something or other. We really haven't dug into this, right? And when you dig into it, that's what you have to do. You have to, it calls for wisdom, as it said. So the second beast really only points to who? The first beast, right? So it says it's his, it's his propaganda. It's his PR. He's like, worship the first beast. The first beast is awesome. I'm going to say everything. I'm going to do tricks and all kinds of things that glorify the first beast, right? Um, he performs signs and miracles. He gives life, and really important, catch it, he gives words to the first beast. So this is, this is like concepts, theories, ideas that are coming out of this that are glorifying the first beast. Now remember the first beast that symbolizes uh, empires and governments that are hostile to Christ and the church. And then the second beast is saying yes, and he's giving all of that airtime on wherever, the internet, Facebook, <laughs> right? All he's doing is pointing to the worldview that what? Rejects Christ, that is anti-God, that is blasphemous, that hates the church. And so this is the vehicle for an anti-God worldview. It's marketed, it's promoted as a new ideology that we need to accept. Does it sound like anything going on today? Any sorts of ideologies that are being shoved down our throats, right? Like school districts that just go along with whatever anti-God worldview of the moment the state sends down whether that be CRT or LGBTQ+, or lack of parental authority, or whatever else is going on in our clown world, right? One quote said, the beast represents pastors, ouch, college professors, politicians, songwriters, or media pundits who cultivate a seductive image in order to gain a hearing for a satanic message. And when you hear satanic message, don't be like, oh, false teaching is demonic. Right? Anything that is not biblical, that is not gospel. There's no middle ground. Either it's Christ or it's from Satan. Right? There's no magical. That's why like when our kids were little, we didn't watch them, let them watch magic shows because it's like it, it's not coming from God. It's coming from Satan. So there's no, no spiritual middle ground going on here. And so false teaching is not necessarily cute or something we, we do poke fun at it. I, let's face it. I poke a lot of fun at it. But it's not something that we should take lightly because it actually is demonic. It actually is Satan. It's, it's set up against God. That's why he throws pastors in there. One commentator writes, instead of magic tricks, we see humanistic, technological, and scientific marvels. The second beast serves the first beast with, with false teaching, with deceptive signs, with wonders, and glorifies it all. with oh, Look at this technology that we have, or look at all this wonderful advances in science that we have. Paul Gardner writes, man replaces God and Christ with himself, and in doing so, succumbs to the full deception of the beast. The state 
wants worship and allegiance. Rome wanted worship and allegiance. They didn't care if you worshipped Christ, but as long as you also worshipped the emperor too, right? Um, let's see, I probably outran my notes. So we're looking, yeah, at authority structures that promote any anti-God worldview. It's marketed, it's promoted, it's ideological, it's concepts, it's theories. Remember, he was using words to point to the first beast to say, these are the anti-church uh, superpowers, evil powers, evil governments, right? So what is the mark of the beast? There is absolutely no shortage of ideas in the evangelical world, right? I found just a few book titles that we can look at here. The mystery of that guy unlocked. Here's another famous guy drew in a pentagram there for us. Um, here's one that will show us. If you spell out the word corona, you can actually add it up together and come to uh, the number 666. Didn't know if you guys knew that or not. And you can't really see the other side of it, but uh, th he makes a claim, too, that the RFID chips or the, the barcode scanners, definitely, that will be implanted in you. And that is absolutely, as well, the mark of the beast, as well. So we'll just close in prayer on that, and uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> There's lots of false teaching. Is it an Iron Maiden song? Come on, who's with me on that? Is it Oprah Winfrey? Is it barcodes? Is it Apple Pay? I hope it's not Apple Pay because I use that. Is it the vaccine? <clears throat> I don't know. Is it? Uh, sorry to disappoint you. I, 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 it's, I'm not, it's been symbolic all along, right? So I don't think this is going to be a, a physical mark. Most likely it is not a physical mark, and I always try to pad it with that. This, what we've seen so far is not a physical mark. There's so much symbolism, right? It's more of a spiritual symbolism. Um, I, I'm holding to a traditional Reformed view here. Yes, they still do. They still do. Yep. They have little pieces of the scrolls tied there and tied to everywhere else. Yep. Yeah, I did like what he said in the video. I really had never thought of that, the first part about the anti-Shema, where you had the Shema, you, you bound it, that's what they're talking about. You bind it to your head and to your hand. You know, they, have you ever seen them? They have those black, like, looks like electrical tape that goes, like, all the way up, you know? And it's the idea of, you know, with your thoughts and with your actions, you're serving, loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? This is a really good quote. Um, Popular end times books describe the mark of the beast as something yet to appear. Often a technology to implant a computer chip that will control all commerce. There are abundant reasons to believe, however, that John is referring to a phenomenon common to his own age. Remember, he's writing to an audience here, right? The Greek word for mark is karagma, a term used for the emperor's seal on official documents. In this light, the mark of the beast alludes to the state's political and economic stamp of approval, given only to those who go along with its religious demands. Ultimately, the mark of the beast involves a choice between the world and Christ. Yeah. Two theories on that. Um, 
the first one they mentioned in the video, which is uh, gematria, which is the, the Hebrew words for, you know, if you spell it out, it's a little bit clunky in, in theory-wise, but it, it technically comes out, could come out to spell Nero. Nero at that time, even though he had died, was, it was very significant. He was a big persecutor. They thought he might actually rise from the dead and come back and persecute the church. So he was commonly labeled the Antichrist. But if, if again, like, I'm, I would say it's not just Nero, right? That it's what Nero, again, symbolized. Like any authority structure that then is going to align itself against the church and try to tear it down and persecute the church. The other theory, too, about the numbers that, that um, I like, too, is that the number of perfection all along has been what? Seven, right? So six is, <laughs> six is one less than that, right? So it's not quite perfection. And if you do three, like three is always a big number in the Bible, too. So 777, theoretically, would be the complete number of perfection. And 666 might, might be interpreted saying it is a very close counterfeit, yet imperfect of it. Yet symbolizing evil's attempt to come as close as possible to the gospel with false teaching or deception or something like that, but yet clearly not be the truth. So that's what I got on the numbers. Um, so let, let's go back to the beasts, right? If, if the, the beasts, again, put this together with the visions of Daniel, right? If the beast from the sea clearly, I would say, represents world powers. If you're going to call it back from Daniel, it's going to be world powers, right? World powers that are set up against the church, right? Put this together with the second beast. The second beast is, is clearly teaching right here in Revelation, pointing to the first beast, propagandizing on his behalf, speaking words, clearly ideologies, theories, ideas that are anti-God. Right? And we see this all over the place in CRT, in intersectionality, in gender dysphoria policies, in the marginalization of the church, in government overreach into private businesses or religious freedom. We see it everywhere, right? The mark of the beast has um, taken on different identifications over the course of church history, right? We've got to remember, we're not just reading this in 2021. Like he said, trying to then read the headlines into this, we've got 2,000 years of church history. So how did somebody who received this in 60 or 90 AD think about that? Well, for them, they're obviously going to think about the Roman Empire. They're going to be like, well, that's the one that's currently oppressing us and killing us and all of that. But there were empires after that and empires after that and empires after that all the way up until today, right? So we are, uh, yeah, go ahead. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And I think that's why the Lord allows events like that to show us. It's like it is, it's, it's, you, you can't nail it down to one thing, right? It is symbolic. It is, it is set up against the church. Right? Yeah. It's, well, it's an antichrist agenda, right? It's an anti-church anti agenda, right? So if we then don't go along with 
the ideologies that are being shoved down our throats, right, then you could be saying you're not taking the mark of the beast, right? You're not, you're not going along with the program. No, I'm not going to, my kids are not going to learn that. No, I'm not going to say that. No, I'm not going to believe that. No, I don't believe that about whatever, creation or gender or whatever else, right? But you have everybody else on this side who's gobbling it down and saying, yes, 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 yes. They're taking that mark. So the mark, don't forget, is an identification. Anybody besides me ever feel like completely outed within 30 seconds as the guy who just stands against the tide, right? Somebody has the mark, somebody doesn't have the mark. It's very evident right away. Oh, there's the Christian. There he is, right? You don't have the mark. You don't have the deal. What's your problem? Why don't you just go along with the program, right? Cancel culture. Yep, exactly. We'd be in a lot of trouble, right? I know Amazon just makes it so dang easy, don't they? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, I, either it's an illusion, because we know he's still mortally wounded. We know he's going to lose him. Yeah, it says he's deceiving with magic. You know, it could be. True, yeah. Another counterfeit. Yep, exactly. So this is where I would land on that, that if you're not going along with the program, you're not woke, you're not whatever, like you are spotted, you are identified right away. Right? You are marked as someone who didn't go along with the program. Right? It symbolizes the endorsement of the state in its official doctrine, because that's what it is. They're trying to indoctrinate us, and they've been trying to indoctrinate Christians all along. It's the context, again, of the epic spiritual battle between God and Satan that was kicked off after his resurrection, and it's still going on today, right? And we've got to remember, look at 2 Corinthians 10, right? Let, let's go back. Let's balance it with the rest of Scripture. What are we up against? What are we fighting, so to speak? Yeah. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, although we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's our battleground. Our battleground is thoughts and ideologies and theories and all of that that set themselves up against the knowledge of Christ. Right? That is our battleground. And if we, if we look at um, back in Revelation 13, uh, 10. Again, it's a call of endurance and faith of the saints. So what does it mean for us? It means we've got to stand firm. It means we've got to know our Bible. It means we've got we to gotta know apologetics, why we believe what we believe. All that stuff's important. We've got to be able to spot a counterfeit, and we've got to be able to stand firm, right? Because cancel culture is for real, right? And I heard a great podcast today that I really appreciated, um, that it's not like you guys, the guys who are in, like, the jobs, right? The guys that have a lot to lose by standing up, like a teacher or something that says, no, I'm not going to teach this stuff, right? They have a lot to lose, like... 
a guy like me, I really don't have that much to lose. Like, you would expect a pastor to stand up for it. Like, it's okay, so they might come and take me to jail in 20 years or whatever, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not a teacher who has to stand in it every single day against the tide, right? I'm not a guy who has to be in corporate America every single day and fight against the LGBT agenda or, or, or get passed over for a promotion or something like that. That's why it's a rallying cry for all of us, but mostly you guys, the lay people of the church, right, who are in the world every single day to stand firm and to, to know what you believe. All right? Good? All right. Woo! Nine minutes for three chapters. We're going to make it happen. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to make it happen or not. <laughs> All right, chapter 14. We get the first five verses. And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with them 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. Notice how many times Revelation uses things like like, right? Symbols. And I heard, uh, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I don't know if my slides are changing or not. I gave up. Sorry, guys. My app crashed. So we see the return of the 144,000. Right? We've seen that before. Second time we've seen them. They have been protected, right? They are still there. 144,000 symbolizes what I would say again is the church. It is the, the quantity of the redeemed, the whole church from Israel to us today. People who have either believed in the coming of the Messiah or believed in Jesus as he has been revealed, right? What are they doing there? They're not getting they're not getting married, okay? There's music, there's music going on too, right? There's little, they're worshiping, happy. They're playing guitar. They're playing some harps, right? They're, they're, the scene is again the worship of the Lamb, right? On Mount Zion, which is symbolic again as the the, the temple scene, right? And as Rhoda said, they've not defiled themselves with women. What on earth does that have to do with anything? Please. <laughs> what do we think? <laughs> so those who have been redeemed from mankind, the first fruits, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Gives us a little more clue here, right? They're two good quotes that I found. The spiritual, the, what's in question here is purity in question is that of spiritual faithfulness. Another guy adds, it means that the people in question have kept themselves completely free from intercourse with the pagan world system. They have lived up to what is implied in their betrothal to Christ. So they've not been unfaithful to Christ. They've not, of course, uh, indulged in sin, 
They have not produced it. They said that no, no lies were found. They are blameless. So these are the faithful people who have held firm. Again, it's the church. It's legit Christians. It's people who have not been defiled by sin. We see three angels that are coming in. It seemed to be the introduction of the last sequence of visions. Did you go up there, Ron? Oh, you're the best. Such a good guy. Now I have to look backwards on my stuff. Right. We see angels then introducing the last sequence of seven, which is bowls, right? We see angel number one, and I'm just going to breeze through these quickly in 14.7. So he said with a loud voice, this is an angel flying directly over, overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This angel's proclaiming overhead a gospel. And the gospel really is news. It's good news. But he's also saying, it's, got, it's like a gospel with teeth. He's also saying, fear God. Like, repent. Like, for real. Like, it, the end is coming. Like, so he's not only saying the good news. He's also warning of the judgment to come. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon. And it's the hope that the anti-God worldview will one day fall. And he talks about drinking the cup or indulging in sexual immorality again. And of course, we are swimming in a swamp of sexual immorality in our culture with pornography and all forms of sexual perversion, right? It's called to remain firm in that. The third angel announces that wrath is ready as prepared for those who reject God and worship the beast. And I couldn't help but thinking, like, isn't God giving enough warning here? Like, still. He's still warning people. He's still saying repent. He's still saying stop. He's still saying fear God. He's still giving them hope. And the message in verse 12 of chapter 14, once again, here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ, right? Really only two kinds of people, this is what this is pointing out to. Those who remain faithful to Jesus, those who refuse to buy the ideologies, those who refuse to take the mark, and those that do, right? Whether they uh, uh, profess to be believers at one time and were proved they were not, or whether they just rejected God their whole lives. There's really only two buckets of people. Either you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. That's what this is setting up to be. And that's why the angels are warning them. Right? Look at verse 14. goes into the harvest of the earth. And then I looked and behold a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. What is a sickle? We farmers here, anybody? Yeah, it's basically like a curved thing that you swing and you cut weeds. You harvest things with, in the sense that if you have uh, a field full of weeds, you, it's, it's like an old-time weed whacker, right? You, just, you cut the weeds down, you cut them in half, right? It's not a good picture. It's a picture of judgment. And we see the son of man, which is whom? Is it up there? Jesus. Son of man being Jesus up there. 
right? And Jesus now is the one who is actually starting this wrath, right? This is actually his second coming. This is, again, right? Nested dolls. We've seen this before. This is happening again. Jesus is on the scene. Here comes the events of the end of the world, right? And we've got some more angels announcing some of these things. Uh, angel 1 announces that the harvest of the earth has begun. And he harvests the earth in judgment. The second angel is a temple angel that has another sickle, perhaps uh, going after uh, those that claim to be workers of pastoral workers or church workers or things that are not truly believers. Angel 3, the altar angel, the grapes in, in the wine press symbolizing God's wrath for sin, pouring out like juice from the crushed grapes. You guys remember any other things about harvest in the Bible? Maybe in the New Testament? Yeah, the wheat and the tares. Yeah, definitely. So we're at that, at that point. We're at the end and, and the judgment's coming. Did Jesus ever say anything when he was here on earth about harvesting? What, what was the harvest when Jesus was here? Yeah, so we have a harvest unto righteousness, right? Go out, proclaim the gospel, right? The harvest is plentiful. There are souls that are, that are mine that are ready to receive, right? So we see when Jesus was here, the message of redemption was in effect, right? The first coming, be saved, right? Repent and believe the kingdom of, hand is at, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Now he's coming again, harvest not of redemption, harvest of judgment so same term just kind of that twofold meaning of that right still the same word of harvest but twofold meaning of it very 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 profound to be thinking about that it's a it's a of course a challenge to us to be faithful again and clearly again like another interlude we see what's going on things getting set up before the next sequence of seven it's seven thirty i'm just going to push ahead a little bit more Brent, okay are we good are we good all right, let's look at chapter 15. Here comes seven angels and seven plagues. Look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in the heaven. Okay? This is happening in the spiritual realms. Great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. Okay? We see a, a sea of glass mingled with fire, otherwise known as the crystal sea. We see another scene of worship around the throne. We see harps. We see singing. And they're singing in verse 3, the song of Moses. When was the song of Moses sang? Remember, think back to Exodus. What was going on at that time in Exodus? Anybody remember? Why were they singing? What, Pala? Yeah. It's after they were rescued after they were redeemed, after God judged Egypt, his nation saved, now they sing praise to God, right? So we see this kind of foreshadowing again, because what's about to happen is more plagues that are going to be very reminiscent of what happened in Egypt, and we're going to see people then praising God for what? Their deliverance, but that's actually also, you've got to believe that Israel was singing and dancing because there were millions and millions of Egyptian soldiers that just died, their enemies were defeated. So there is that idea that one day we will rejoice with God that the enemies of God have been defeated as well. 
right? So they know that's imminent. That's why they're going to tag it back to the Song of Moses to see like, hey, remember when our enemies were defeated in Egypt? Um, we see salvation through judgment. We see that as a theme throughout the Bible. People are saved, but people are judged, right? See it at the cross of Christ. We are saved. Why? Because Christ was judged in our place, right? Israel was saved. Why? Egypt was judged, right? Uh, Israel landed in their home in Canaan. Why? Because God judged the Canaanites, right? And one day, we will make it home to our eternal home, but it will be at the judgment of God's enemies as well. So salvation through judgment is a, it's a huge biblical theme throughout. All right, so we have then seven bowls, which are then going to be coming at us. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. The four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Why does God have wrath? Because he's holy and we're not, right? It's his, it's his wrath for sin. It is time. Like he's been warning this throughout all of biblical history and it's time. The wrath for sin, right, is going to be poured out. John 3, one of the scariest verses, 337, I think it is, right? Those who have believed have eternal life. Those who have not believed will not see eternal life. Why? Because God's wrath remains on them. When you come to Christ, your wrath for sin is covered. It is justified. It is forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've not come to Christ, John 3 tells us that the wrath remains on you. And it will remain on you should you not repent until this moment when the wrath of God is poured out, when that happens, right? Scary stuff. So some, some bowls. I think I have a little summary of the bowls. The bowl, number one, sores appear for the mark wearers. Bowl number two, seas turn to blood. Have we seen this before? A couple times. We saw it in Exodus, of course, with the plagues, but we also saw it in the sixth seal, and we also saw it in the second trumpet. So again, real good evidence that we're seeing the same end times from different perspectives, right? Not a chronological thing that moves through Revelation, right? He's giving us a different flavor of this. Bowl number three, rivers and springs get turned to blood as well. We see vengeance on God's enemies for the martyrs. Uh, it, it, it's profound that he's using blood in that to go after those who have inflicted martyrdom on his people he's almost saying that okay you want blood you want to shed the blood of my children guess what have all the blood you can possibly want or not want right he goes after them and he goes after them with blood bowl four scorching heat again god is using creation to judge and we see something happening in bowl four that people are actually cursing god look at 16 Nine, they were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. At the end time, people still will not repent. Bowl number five, we see darkness. More people cursing God. Uh, verse 10, fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Right? So we see God inflicting vengeance wrath on the beast itself his kingdom was plunged plunged into darkness 
People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, but they did not repent of their deeds. Again, we see a lack of repentance. We think back to the plagues, darkness was, near the, darkness was near the end, right? It was right before um, the final plagues, right? And so we see that again here, again. Darkness is, is near the end. We're at bowl, bowl five. Bowl six, the rivers dry up. We see frogs, which represent evil spirits or demons who incite the world rulers to this mother of all wars that is being set up, right? Uh, look at verse 13. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, hopping around, I guess. For they were demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Again, we're talking about world powers here. We're talking about influence and government and all that stuff. Performing signs to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then we have Jesus himself. Anybody else have red letters in their Bible? Right here, Jesus himself jumping into this saying, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. Right? So Armageddon is, uh, it actually is, Translated from the Hebrew, Har Megiddo, which means the mountain of Megiddo, and we are actually there. Remember that, honey? So that's the actual place of Megiddo, the plains in the Jezreel Valley that's overlooking it. Mel and I were at the top of Mount Megiddo. Uh, Napoleon fought a battle there, and he called it the, the, I don't know, the best battlefield he ever saw, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But there have been legit, epic battles there. World War I battles, I think, was the last one that was fought there. Um, but there have been legit battles there. And so it is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew that says Armageddon is actually Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo, right? Which leads people to believe that, okay, this battle is for real, and this battle is actually going to happen right there at the end of time. That's what you'd believe if you were a literal interpretation of this moment. I I'm on the fence, is a battle that could happen there in the hot spot of the Middle East with lots of forces coming together? Sure, that's completely within the realm of possibility. Is it symbolic? I don't know. I kind of lean that way, but we'll have to wait and see how everything goes down, right? Is it a literal battle or not? It's definitely a spiritual battle. We know that. Is it going to turn into a literal war of all wars at the Armageddon? Maybe. We'll have to... We'll have to see. Right. So now, once again, this is a little break before the seventh bowl comes out. So this is the end again. When we get to the seventh bowl, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, that's it. That's the end. Same thing. Perspectives. The angel pours it into the air, and verse 17 says, it is done. Anybody else think of anything else in Scripture? Ah, I put it up there. Why do I do that? <laughs> It is finished. I was really hoping it was the same word in the Greek, but it's not. But it's still the same idea. So it is finished. Christ said that on the cross, and, and it's said once again um, that it is done. Right? The, the, his enemies have been destroyed. 
right? Um, Jesus, again, if we go back to that verse uh, 15, we see that. And blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. We see Jesus himself encouraging us and, and the church here now, today in 2021, warning us, reminding us to be faithful, be faithful. We need to stand strong. And so some takeaways, uh, big ones, right? Jesus returns. Hey, we've got to remember that. That actually happens, right? Jesus wins. Also a big takeaway. We're called to persevere in the gospel. We are called to fight ideas, right? So we better know what we believe and why because we're seeing a whole bunch of really nasty ideas coming through the pipe right now. Worldview matters and apologetics matters. What we believe and why we believe it matters. All these things are important. It's all part of the um, exhortations from Jesus to be faithful. And again, we should be people of great encouragement especially as the church, and that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, any other burning questions, thoughts, disparaging remarks, things that make you go, huh? <laughs> All of it. <laughs> Symbolism, <laughs> summarize it. Summarize Pastor Mike's worldview. Symbolism of the end of the world when Jesus returns and judges his enemies in, in, in grand, prophetic, apocalyptic detail. So. All right. Well, thank you for staying a couple extra minutes. And we, Next week, it's, it's it, man. I mean, there's light stuff next week. We only have the great prostitute and the beast. Uh, fall of Babylon, we have the millennium, and, you know, that's been clearly decided for <laughs> 2,000 years, you know. <laughs> yeah. <Amen. laughs> I did. I heard that as well. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, uh, Lord, that we can spend time together. Help us, Lord, as these things hurt our heads, um, and we pray that you will help us to see through this kind of forest of symbolism and, Lord, these dynamic words and these events that, frankly, we don't know how they're going to play out, and help us to see through all of that, to see you, to see your power, to see your authority, to see you finishing, Lord, the gospel, what you have said, your story of the Bible, that you have paved the way for redemption that we're living in that time right now of the church and the spiritual battles that are all around us, but one day you will return and you will judge and you will save. And we pray that we are found faithful when that happens. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.